So when it comes to refugee trying to harm this country, it's so far be- a few in between that you can't you can't think of anybody. So that's not the intent. When I fled Liberia, you think I was fleeing to hurt someone? I was fleeing for survival. I was fleeing because I wanted a second chance and this country provided us that second chance. Why would I turn my back on this country? I can't. So to those who think we're here for anything other than survival, it's inaccurate. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. This week, we're talking to Mayor Wilmot Collins of Helena, Montana, Mayor Collins is a proud Montanan, a former Liberian refugee, and a vocal refugee advocate. Your hosts for this week are Claire Mattis and me, Aidan Thomason. Hi everyone, I'm Aidan, as you know, and today I'm here with Claire and Mayor Wilmot Collins of Helena, Montana. He is the first refugee and first Black mayor of Helena and is a former Liberian refugee. Mayor Collins, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. We can just dive right in. So I kind of wanted to first walk through your personal story and then get to your career kind of at the the latter half. So just this is the most general question, but what was your life like in Liberia before the Civil War? Liberia, you know, I thought we lived in a pretty middle class life. Because my mom was superintendent of schools. My dad was a civil engineer. I played baseball. I went to the University of Liberia on a tennis scholarship. You know, we grew up well. We grew up in a big household of seven brothers and four sisters. And my parents worked for the Firestone. You know, the um, Firestone tires you have here in this country, B.F. Goodrich, Bridgestone, all that material comes from Liberia. We had the world's largest rubber plantation. And so we shipped the rubber here and you make the tires. And my parents worked for that company. So we lived out there on that plantation. And I went to elementary school on the plantation. And then uh, when I got to middle school, well, we call it high school back there from seventh to 12th is considered. So when I got to seventh grade, I went to a Catholic boarding school. And I stayed there called Carroll High School. I stayed on the boarding school until I graduated in 12th grade. After graduation, I went to a Baptist junior college, also boarding. I went there and graduated from Rick's Institute Junior College. It's a Baptist institute. And after graduating from there, I went to the University of Liberia in Monrovia. When I graduated from the University of Liberia, I started teaching at the SOS Children's Village. It's an international organization. It's in almost every African, Asian, and European country. I started teaching there. I taught for about three years, and then the war came, and uh, you know, and then all hell broke loose, and then we fled. But life in Liberia was great. We had no reason to leave. Like, I never left Liberia before the crisis. We had everything there. Could you describe the conflict that caused you to become displaced? Yeah. Um, Liberia is the first in Africa, first independent nation. We've, um, we were not colonized. Liberia was established by slaves that were freed from this country, from the U.S. They went back to Africa and established a nation. And um, 
Liberia had her first civil uprising April 12, 1980, when the president, William Talbot, was killed. We had our first military coup d'etat, and the military took over the country. Things got, things weren't as what we were used to, because now the military was ruling with iron fist. You're either with me or you're against me. You can't say anything negative of the military or else you go missing. Things started to deteriorate really fast. And so a lot of people fled Liberia when the military took over. And one of those was Charles Taylor. And when he fled, he decided he and his group, he formed a rebel group, the Independent National Patriotic Front. They formed a rebel group and they decided they were coming back into the country to take over. And that's what really started this, the second wave of war and We all hailed Charles Taylor when he was coming because we were so tired of the military and the crap they were doing. So when Charles Taylor, we heard he was coming through the borders, we were happy. We were cheering. We were doing everything. But little did we know that he had grown so big, he lost control of his rebel group, so to speak, independent national, a national patriotic front of Liberia. He lost control. And so those guys started getting as bad as the soldiers. They were killing, they were looting, they were raping, they were doing a lot of stuff. And so my, um, my parents, we, the, as, the, as the war approached where they were in Firestone, they moved to the city, Monrovia. And my wife was a medical student. So when the war started, we, we went and we moved into the medical dormitory but the soldiers went to the hospital where they used to go to practice and raided the hospital. So they couldn't keep us any longer. So we had to leave. And um, we left and went to my sister's home. When we got there the next day, the war had come to that area and we had to go on the floor. We, we stayed on the floor for almost three days because you could hear stray bullets going through the house. There was, it was a war zone where we were. It was a complete war zone. After about three days, we heard, if you're in here, get out, get out. So we got out and the place was littered, literally littered with bodies. We had to jump over bodies. And this time we fled. And the, the, the safest area we found was the area around the American embassy where the soldiers nor the rebels went. And so my fiance at the time, who is my wife now, we decided we're going to go there. My mom joined us. We went there. But going there, we didn't, we didn't have a plan. We didn't have a place to be. After a day or so, this lady recognized my mom and gave us a room. But the room was bare. There was no bed or anything. But we were happy to take it anyway because at least we'll be out of the elements. We stayed there. After about three months, we heard that there was a second ship coming to the port of Monrovia. And because things got so bad, West African countries got together and decided to send in a peacekeeping force. And the ship that brought the peacekeepers, they were allowing Liberians to get out on the ship and go to one of the African countries. And we missed the first ship. So the second ship, we decided we're going. And that night we prayed about it. The next morning, my mom said, no, I'm not going. The Lord isn't leading me. And I thought she was crazy. I said, Mom, the Lord is leading you. He brought the ship. He wants us to go on this ship. But she would not. And so um, my mom 
my fiance, my sister, her husband, and cousins, we all walked over to the port of Monrovia. It was on a Friday, and the line to get on board the ship was more than a mile or so long, and we were at the back of the line. We stayed on line Friday, Saturday, Sunday, finally around 9.47 p.m., my wife and I were chosen to get on board the ship. And then at 10 o'clock, they shut the gates. We got on board the ship. We didn't know where we we're going. I said, hey, where are we going? My wife said, I don't know where we're going. So by the next day, we found out that the first stop would be in Ghana. And I was happy because in Ghana, they speak English. Because in Liberia, we also speak English, you know. And um, so what was what was heartbreaking was... People loved ones had died the night before, during the night, and they had to dump their loved ones overboard because you couldn't keep the dead among us. You know, you didn't know where you were going. You didn't know how long you would be there. And then I started to think, my God, what would have happened if my mom had passed? I don't know if I would have done that. So I was thankful that she didn't come on the trip. But after three days of being in the port and then the, the ship ride from Liberia to Ghana was another three days. So we got on board that ship. When we got to Ghana, we disembarked and we're in the port. And I'll backtrack a little bit. When we decided to leave my mom, she handed my wife $5 and said, go, God be with you. So when we got into Ghana, like I said, the organization I worked for in Liberia, the SOS Children's Village, had a branch in Ghana. And I told my wife, I said, hey, where's the five bucks? I need to find these people. And I stopped a cab and I told the guy, I'm going to the SOS Children's Village. Can you take me? He said, yes, yeah, sure. And then I showed him the address. I said, but I don't have much money. I only have $5. He said, that's enough. But I lit a phone out. It costs only 50 cents, but he took my five bucks. So um, when we got to the village, I asked to meet with the director. My cousin and I, when we got there, the director told us to identify ourselves. For the first time in my life, I could not identify myself because in Liberia, we had to get rid of all our IDs for fear of being linked to someone or some incident, or some situation. So we got rid of IDs. We didn't travel with IDs. And now here am I needing to tell the man, I'm Wilmot Collins. But he says, so how do I know you're Wilmot Collins? And then he said, but some kids had come on the first ship. If these kids can identify you, we will help you. So I said, hey, send for them. I used to teach them. So they sent for the kids. And when they saw us, they started to cry, and I didn't understand why they were crying. I thought they would be happy. But then I asked to use the restroom for the first time in seven, eight days. So when I got into the restroom for the first time in several months, I looked at myself in the mirror. When they knew Mr. Collins, I was 175 pounds. When they saw me that day, I was 92 pounds. My wife was 87. We were literally dying of starvation. That's why they were crying. And so the director said he will help us. And so we stayed 
my wife was a medical student. He puts her in the clinic and said, hey, you can help out in the clinic. I was a teacher. He put me back into the school. I started helping out in the school. And so we were there for about three months. And then my wife said, hey, uh, this is not the life that's cut off for me. I think we need to get out of here. Let's go to America. I said, how do you suppose we do that? We don't have any money. We don't do this. She said, in fact, let's go to Montana. I said, now nah, you got to make up your mind. We ought to go to America. We go to Montana. And then she said, Montana is in America. So, and my wife was familiar with Montana because she was an African exchange student. And she came to Helena, Montana in high school and went to Helena High School. And the family she lived with for that year, she was in touch with them. And so we started talking with them and they were willing to help, but they didn't know the process. We didn't know the process, but that didn't stop them. They kept pushing it. Finally, a local Catholic college, they contacted the school and the school was willing to offer my wife a full scholarship. And they put me on the scholarship as her dependent. But when we went for the, to the embassy for our visas, they told us only one of us could go. So I said, well, my wife has the scholarship, let her go. So they awarded my wife a visa to come to America. And about two weeks before departure time, she started getting really sick, really sick. So took her to the hospital and the doctor comes out and says, congratulations, Mr. Collins, you'll soon be a proud father. I said, oh my God, no, 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 my wife is going to school. He said, well, she's going to school pregnant. And I'm like, oh my God. So now we have to change plans because I didn't mind her leaving, but now she's leaving with our child and I didn't know when I'll ever see them again. But she was able to convince me that this was the best thing for us to do. So um, we eventually agreed that she should leave. And she left and she came and stayed with her host family here. In the meantime, Congress had passed the Liberia Resettlement Act, which enabled you to join your family if your family in America was a permanent resident or a citizen. And I didn't qualify because my wife wasn't. She was a student. So then I went and registered with the United Nations High Commission for Refugee, UNHCR, to see if I could come on the refugee program. After going through um, everything, the process, I was going through the process when my daughter was born. I went straight to the top of the list. Now I was, qual- I was qualified for the Liberian Resettlement Act. We did everything. We filled out the paperwork. I went to all the various interviews and it wasn't easy. And so I always tell people, man, refugees are the most vetted people in the world. Because I had so many interviews with INS, FBI, Homeland Security, State Department, UNHCR. Then we went through medical. Then we went, I mean, it was crazy. So after two years and seven months, I was finally cleared to join my family. Just before I came, I called my sister. I have a sister in New Jersey. I had a sister in New Jersey. I called her. I said, hey, Joy. Her name is Joy. I said, would you go to Montana and visit my family? 
She said, yeah, sure. So she got a ticket and flew into Montana. She came in uh, November, November of 1993, I think. And um, she visited them for four days. And when she went home, I called her up. I said, hey, so how is Montana? She said, you don't want to go to Montana. Do not go to Montana. I said, why? She said, I was there for four days. It snowed for four days and there's no black people there. You will be uncomfortable. Don't go. I said, Joy, my family's there. I have to go there. She said, that would be the only black people you will see, your family. And so it piqued my interest. My vision of America was what we saw on TV. Black people everywhere. So I called my wife up. I said, how's Montana? And this when I called her up, it was in January. I said, how's Montana? She said, oh, it's very nice. I said, what's the weather like? She said, oh, my God, it's pretty warm today. It's 29 degrees. I said, 29 degrees? How can that be pretty warm? She said, oh, you'll get used to it. I said, no, no, no. The average temperature in Liberia is 85. Water freezes at 32. How can pretty warm be 29? It doesn't make sense. I couldn't picture my head around what she was telling me. So I said, hey, let me speak to your host mom. And so a host mom got on the phone. Hi, Wilma, it's so nice for you to be, you'll be coming to join us. We're happy to be, we'll be waiting for you and blah, blah, blah. I say, hey, Joyce, what's the weather like today? So, oh my God, today is so warm. It's 29 degrees. I said, Joyce, humor me and tell me, what is it when it's cold then? She said, oh, sometimes 30 below. I said, below what? She said, below zero. So I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? I, I couldn't understand it because I've never been in an environment where it was colder than 60 degrees. And these people are telling me it's colder than ice, ice, ice. Your water freezes at 32 degrees. So Maddie got back. My wife name is Maddie. She got back on the phone and I said, has Jamie, our daughter, seen a black person? She said, oh, yeah, there's a black boy in my school. I said, did you just say a black boy? She said, yes. I said, so that's only one. Uh, means one. She said, don't worry. She'll get used to you. I said, that's not the point. But where do you guys live where it's warm at 29? A black boy in the school. And, you know, I couldn't understand. And so the day arrived for me to leave. And uh, my sister met me at John F. Kennedy Airport. She had this huge bag. She said, you're going to Montana. Put on every piece before you go to Montana tomorrow. I said, okay, she had been here, so she knows. So she had two sets of long johns in there, a pair of jeans. You know how difficult it is to put on two sets of long johns? And, but you know what she didn't even remind me was the fact that I'll be in the airport for most of the time, too. When I got, when I got through dressing, I was like the Michelin man. Got into the airport, I'm sweating and sweating. But anyway, we left from JFK and flew into Salt Lake City. And then when we got into Salt Lake City, I ran into the restroom and took off a few layers because it was so hot on the plane. And then we got back on the plane for Helena and we're descending into Helena and the pilot gets on the intercom. Welcome to Helena. It's sunny and warm at 32 degrees. And I'm freaking out because I had on dress. I had taken off some clothes and now I'm thinking, how do I put it back on? got there, there was this huge crowd waiting for me. And the only person I wanted to see was my daughter. And as I got into the terminal, this 
I mean, quite a few people. And I spotted my wife holding up my daughter. And she put her down and said, there's daddy. Go to daddy. And she started to walk towards me. And then she started to run. And I just lost it, ran toward her, grab her, grab her up and hug. That was the first time I, was, I had touched my daughter in two years and seven months. And so we went and, you know, we arrived. I arrived here, met everybody, thanked everybody. And we lived with our host family until I started working and we moved out into the low-income housing. And I got my first job, crazy, two weeks after I came to Helena. So I'm walking around town and I see the Capitol building, big, beautiful building. And I walked up to the Capitol building and ran up the stairs. To my right, I saw office of the Secretary of State. To my left, I saw office of the governor. And I decided I'm going to see the governor. As I approached his office, I got stopped. And the lady asked me, do you have an appointment? I said, no. She said, would you like to make one? I said, yes. So I'm writing my name down. And this gentleman comes behind me and said, may I help you? I turned around and said, no, sir, I'm here to see the governor. He said, well, I am the governor, Mark Roscoe. What can I do for you? I said, oh, well, I just came from Africa two weeks ago, and I thought I should come and meet you. He said, what part of Africa? I said, Liberia. He said, oh, where the slaves went? I said, yes. He said, come on in. And I walked into his office. He said, so, Mr. Collins, what do you do? I took out my resume from my pocket. It was a paper copy. I handed it to him. And he looked it over. Oh, I used to teach. I said, yes, sir. And then he pressed his intercom. He said, Pat, would you come in? And one of his advisors came in and he handed my resume to her and said, what can we do for Mr. Collins? And she looked at it. She said, oh, Inner Mountain Children's Home is looking for a counselor. Why don't you apply and use the governor and myself as your references? I said, what? Can I do that? He handed me his card. He said, yes, please. I got interviewed the following week and started working and never left Montana. Later on, joined the military, just retired from the military after 22 years. So that's what happened. Can I ask how you started liking Montana? Because um, obviously that's a, a really big switch. So what was it that made you decide you just wanted to stay? You know, um, really, there were several things that happened that I knew I belonged here. One of them was when I, I met the governor on my first date. I mean, I literally started working because of him. And not only that, though. So when we finally moved into to our place, we got vandalized with KKK, go back to Africa. And um, I didn't even know my home was vandalized until one of the neighbors came over and said, did you see the nasty thing written on your wall? I said, no. She said, come outside. So I went outside to, to look at what was written on the wall. Okay, 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 go back to Africa. And I told him, oh, well, I have to go and call the police. And my neighborhood got together and washed my walls down. The whole neighborhood got together and washed my walls down. I get a little emotional when I think about it. That's when I knew I belong. I mean, you hear a lot of things from everywhere. But you never hear that. There's racism everywhere. But the way my neighborhood reacted, that's what kept me going. 
So yes, that's what happened. That's why I decided that this was the place we needed to stay. The, the weather I hated with a passion. I hated the weather, but um, I had to look beyond me. My kids loved it here. My wife loved it here. So I, it had to be more than just me. So I had to get adjusted. I was just going to ask, because you were talking about how you just retired from the military. When and like, how did you decide to join the military? You know, what was your motivation? I'm always challenging people. Because when I think they're, they're not right, I tend to want to challenge them and find the right answer. And so this lady, I was at work at Inner Mountain Children's Home where I was working, the first job I told you about. And then I got a call from this lady who wanted me to subscribe to the local newspaper. And I told her, no, I didn't want to because I read the newspaper for free at my work. So why subscribe when I can read it for free? And she said, what do you do? And I told her, she said, do you have your weekends to yourself? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, well, why don't you join the National Guard? I said, well, ma'am, I'm not an American. She said, you don't have to be. That was the first thing that piqued my interest. I said, what do you mean I don't have to be? She said, you don't have to be. And she gave me the name and number of a recruiter, Terry Brown. So I said, okay, I'm going to find her because I didn't believe her. And so then I called Terry Brown out and he met with me and I told him, I said, I'm not an American. He said, you don't have to be. I said, are you guys for real? He said, yes. And before I knew it, I was swearing in. I went to South Carolina for my basic training at Fort Jackson. And I spent four years in the National Guard and then joined the Army Reserves and then went to join the regular army, went to Fort Carson in Colorado Springs. And then after 14 years, I uh, got out of the army and joined the Navy Reserve. And I retired through the Navy because I spent eight years in the Navy and 14 years in the army. So that's how I got involved. I was trying to challenge someone. But when I got in it, I enjoyed it. So I stayed and they paid for my master's. So, hey, and we got our home on the Montgomery GI Bill. So, you know, my daughter is in the UK right now. She's in the Navy. My wife is in Texas right now. She's in the Army. And so, and I'm here alone. My son is in Seattle. So. I didn't realize other members of your family were also in the military. Did oh, yeah. wife join around the same time as you did or later? No, no. My wife, we, we, we decided she always wanted to join. But I told her that both of us can't go in for fear if we get deployed at the same time. We yeah. didn't want to leave our kids with others. So when our kids graduated high school, that's when she joined. And she's a nurse practitioner. She's working in the hospital out there, tending to COVID soldiers and all of that. Can I ask how you guys manage the distance? I know from my own experience with having family members in the military that that's really difficult. But I know you also did that during your refugee journey as well. You see, I'll tell you, uh, it was very difficult for me because um, when my wife came over to Montana and I was left in Africa, it was very difficult. That life was not me because I didn't know when I would ever join her. And so I, I told her, you have to move on. You have to move on. But she was steadfast. No, you will come here in God's time. Just have the faith. 
you would join us. And sure enough, I did. And so when, when I came in and joined the military, it, it was difficult for, for her because she had to deal with two kids. But with her gone right now, I'm alone. I can handle me. I can handle me. But I can't, I can't imagine her going through that when I was going this place and going that place. And she had to care for those two kids. It was tough. I remember almost every day, every day at school, I had to talk to my son because just to keep him grounded before he went on to his recess, the teacher would have him call me and we would talk and I would prep him up and say, hey, go enjoy your recess. Do this. Do this. I had to do that every day, five days a week. And so she had a harder time than I did. And really incredible that you guys have definitely weathered a lot. Moving forward from your time in the military, what made you decide to then run for mayor? <laughs> that was crazy. This, this story is crazy. I have a lot of crazy stories. But I was sitting at this table where I'm sitting right now. And my son was at the University of Montana. He was, um, I think, sophomore or junior, 19 years old. He comes home, and Missoula is about an hour and a half away from where we are in Helena. So he comes home this day, and he tells me, Dad, we need to talk. And I said, yeah, sure. What's going on? He said, I don't want Mom to hear. I said, oh, boy, is your girlfriend pregnant? He said, no, Dad, that's gross. So we went out. He said, Dad, I think it's time for you to get involved in politics. I said, whoa, I'm not qualified to do these people's stuff. I'm, I can't do it. I can't. He said, Dad, you are qualified. You can do it. I said, okay, give me three reasons why you think I'm qualified. He said, Dad, you know a lot of people. A lot of people know you, and you're educated. That's all you need. I said, I don't even know what to do, Bliss. His name is Bliss. I said, I don't know what to do, Bliss. He said, invite your friends over. If your friends don't think you're ready, I won't bother you anymore. I said, okay. So we prepared dinner and he came from his campus and I invited three couples. After eating, I told him, hey guys, this is what I'm planning to do. I plan to run for mayor. And one of the ladies yelled out, oh my God, this is fate. So I said, what do you mean? She said, we're just talking about asking you to run. And you invite us to tell us you want to run. And then my son says, I rest my case. He knew he was right. And so I said, but I don't know what to do. He said, the first thing you need to do is convince your family. This is what you want to do. And the reason my son didn't want to talk in front of his mom, his mom does not like politics. She doesn't see politics as something to look up to because uh, politicians don't have sort of a good taste. So I'm not a politician. I consider myself a public servant. So these guys were able to guide me through. I went and registered. I paid the, fine, the fee. We started knocking on doors. And that was tough because I knew I was the underdog. I was running against someone who was born here, raised here, went to school here, and is well-liked by the community. I like the guy. 
I remember my first door I ever knocked on in my life. It was a Saturday morning around nine o'clock. And the training I got, when you knock on a door, you give your elevator speech, which is two and a half minutes, you move on. And um, I had a bag with all my flyers in it. And this lady is up on her patio with a cup of coffee, Saturday morning, got her paper. So I didn't know what to do. Do I disturb her? It was just so hard because I'm not used to just going out disturbing someone who's being so peaceful. I mean, had her paper, drinking a coffee on her patio. And so I finally built up the courage to say, and I said, good morning, ma'am. And she said, I'm not buying anything was her response. I'm not buying anything. I said, well, ma'am, I'm not selling anything. My name is Wilmot Collins and I'm running for mayor. That was the first time I said that line. My name is Wilmot Collins and I'm running for mayor. And when I said that, she said, come on up. And then I opened the gate and walked up to her. And she said, can I get you a cup of coffee? I said, no, ma'am, I've already had one. She said, I'll get it anyway. She went back and got me a cup. And then I knew straight my first stop was not going to be two and a half minutes. So she brought the coffee. We're sitting down. She said, talk to me about you. And I started to talk to her about my campaign and what we were doing. But the amazing thing was after that, it took me about 15 minutes with this lady. But when I told her I had to leave because I had this whole stack of people I had to see, she took me to her neighborhood. She introduced me to her neighborhood. Took me, this is so, so, and so, let's go meet him. This is this person, let's go meet them. Even though I was supposed to spend two and a half minutes and I spent about 15, it even out because she took me and introduced me to, and made, made it so easy for me because it was hard to go and meet people. It was the most difficult thing, knocking on doors, but I got used to knocking on doors. And, and then um, we went through, what we, they don't call them debates here, we call them forums, political forums. So we, I attended every forum because I knew I was the underdog. I, I needed them to see me. I needed them to hear me. I needed them to feel me. And when I knew I stood a chance, when we did the first quarter reporting of how much we've raised and I outraised the incumbent from money only in Helena. And I looked at my team. I said, we got a shot at this. And then I started to take it serious because I just went through the motions because I didn't think I would do anything. I didn't think I would win. So, but after that, I started putting in more time, more energy, more effort. And so um, I remember on the day of election, I was so nervous. I told my team, I'm not going to look at TV today. I'm not looking at my phone today. I'm not doing anything. My wife and I held hands. We had our watch party at a little Mexican grill, small place. And people came in to wish us well. And uh, I was just sitting there. And so my son came running in. Dad, dad, you're leading, you're leading. I said, by how many? He said, by 32. I said, that's not leading, Bliss. 32 votes is anybody. But I never went below. Every time they called out, I increased my lead. My lead was increased. 
and it went to 50, then it went to 75, then it went to 100 and 200 and 300. And by midnight, I had a comfortable lead. And then I got a call. The number was 202 number. So I knew it was Washington, D.C. And then I answered that call. And on the other line, said, uh, hi, this is Senator Tester's uh, aide. Uh, would you take a call from the senator? That was the Montana U.S. senator. I said, yes, sure. So he got on the phone. He said, Mary like Collins. I said, whoa, Senator, this is way too early. He said, this is not my first rodeo. I think you got this. I said, wow. So the whole place was quiet because they knew it was a 202 number from Washington, but they didn't know who was on the line. And so after I told him thanks and he congratulated me, I hung up. Everybody said, who was it? Who was it? Everybody wanted to know in the hall. And I said, if you guys promise not to cheer, I'll tell you who it is. And they all promised, we won't, we won't. I said, well, it was U.S. Senator John Tester congratulating us. The place went crazy. They started opening cigars, popping the champagne, doing everything. And I was so scared because they were still counting. And these people were already cheering on. And then the next call I got was from Huffington Post. And the reporter called and said, congratulations, Mary Lee Collins. I said, well, it's still early. I'm not there yet. He said, how does it feel to make history? I said, what are you talking about? This is just a mayoral election. He said, oh, you don't know. I said, no, what? Then I said, hey, hold on one minute. And I put him on hold and went to my team and my son. I said, hey, guys, is that something I'm missing? So what do you mean? I said, are we making history? Then my son said, yeah, dad, you're the first African to be mayor if you win. I said, but why didn't you tell me that? He said, dad, you would have lost focus. So we kept it away from you. Your head would have gotten big. You would not have won this. So I said, are you telling me I'm the first black person? He said, yes, dad. I said, wow. So then I went back on the phone to the Huffington Post guy. I said, well, I just learned, yeah, I'm the first black person to be elected mayor if I win. He said, yes. How does it feel? I said, well, now it feels good. At first, I was just running and, you know, but now that I know that I'm making history, hey, who doesn't like to make history? But I didn't get a call from the incumbent all night and it bothered me a little bit. And then the next morning, I got a call from the lieutenant governor from almost every news outlet you can think about. They were calling me. And so around nine o'clock that morning, my wife and I went to Starbucks to have some coffee. As we're having our coffee, my phone rang and I didn't recognize the number. And I picked it up and said, this is Wilmot. And the person on the other end of the line said, hi, Wilma, this is Mayor Jim Smith. Uh, I'm calling to congratulate you and to tell you you did a good job. If there's anything I can do to help with your smooth transition, please let me know. And how about us meeting sometime next week to just go over some things? I said, sure, Mayor, I'll be happy to meet with you. That, that's the call I was waiting for. And then I just started screaming in Starbucks. I say, here he, here he, I'm your new mayor. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, because you were talking about, you know, being the first Black mayor. Was there any, I guess, since you didn't know until you won, I guess, but um, <laughs> right. was there any difficulty presented? For, you know, was there anything you um, 
I read that you were also the first refugee mayor, you know, um, did that have an effect on how you planned, what your policy plans were or what the plan was for the, um, your, your term? No, you see, because um, when, when I ran, I ran on three things. You see, for me, you have to look at things because uh, our, our municipal races are nonpartisan. So even though we all know people lean one way or the other, like I lean Democrat, someone else might lean Republican, whatever it is, but it's nonpartisan. So I had to find issues that were nonpartisan. And so I ran on funding the providers of essential services, police, firefighters, EMTs, because that was lacking. They were short-staffed. I mean, it was crazy. So I ran on, we will fund the providers of essential services. I ran on providing opportunities for affordable housing, and I ran on curbing teenage and veteran homelessness. Those are three things. Those are nonpartisan issues. And so that's what I ran on. And, you know, um, most people think, oh, because um, you are a refugee, maybe you will do things with uh, bring, bring about refugees here. But um, we don't have that situation in Helena. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with having resettled refugees into a community, but there are nine agencies that have the authority to. And Missoula, Montana, has one of those agencies, the IRC, International Rescue Committee. And so because of the proximity to Missoula, Helena cannot have one too close. But in order to have established that agency in there, I worked closely with the, the stakeholders who wanted to do that. I had to call in some favors because I worked, I was on the board of LARS, L-I-R-S. I don't know if you know, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. I was on the board for three plus years. I was also on the board for the Refugee Congress. I was on there too. We started Refugee Congress. I was one of those that started Refugee Congress. And so I'm also on the advisory council for Church World Service. So I've, 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 I've put myself out there because I know that's the right thing to do. And so, um, yeah, that's what I ran on. And um, those are some of the things I continue to do. So I was going to ask, since you were mentioning how you've put yourself out here for other refugees, um, we did notice um, obviously, your recent tweet exchange with Representative oh, Rosendale has gone viral. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to ask kind of generally, stemming from that, we know that re anti-refugee sentiment has kind of been on the rise, especially this year with um, Afghan refugees and asylum seekers at the border. Um, so what, what would you say to people that are um, against resettling refugees now? If I ever one person that says something negative about refugees, you have a five or six saying something positive. And in order to reassure people, you have to let them know that refugees are the most vetted immigrant in the world, whether you want to accept that. They're the most vetted immigrant in the world. And for our congressman to jump up and say such stupid stuff about he can't accept 75 refugees here. And so some people say, oh, the refugees, they were not vetted adequately. I said they were being vetted the 20 years we were there. Those people that work alongside us, we vetted them every day of 20 years. They didn't need to go through the same vetting process I went through. They were vetted, adequately vetted. So I try to reassure people and say, look, this country is not here to harm its citizens. It's only 
paying it forward. Whatever those people did, we're trying to help. You know, we told them we would do this A, B, C, D. If you did A, B, C, D. So we have to live up to what we said we would do. But when you're, if you are afraid because you don't believe they were vetted, rest assured, they were vetted. But you know what, what annoyed me the most? Rosendale is a Republican. Our governor is a Republican, and he went out to say he's going to accept them. Who is Rosendale? Who migrated from Maryland to come to here? So he himself is not a real true Montana anyway. So yeah, they call him Maryland Rose, Maryland Matt. But anyway, yeah, when I heard that, I just had to let people know that, no, Montana is way better than what this man is saying, because I'm a living witness to that. So don't be misled by by that tweet he put out. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree just from listening to you that your your testimony is a more powerful statement about what Montana is about rather than something he's saying on the internet. Yeah, yeah. The high behind the pen and paper, you know, he's not living it. So you were talking about, you know, the vetting pro- or like how they've already been vetted. Um I was wondering what the vetting process, like what you think of the vetting process will be like for Afghan refugees. Right now, because of the situation we have found ourselves and what people don't understand, refugees are not vetted in the host country. They are all vetted in a secondary country. That is, you become a refugee when you flee a country. So if these Afghans fled Afghanistan and they're in Qatar or Iraq or wherever, they are being vetted in those countries. The ones that came immediately have already been vetted. Those people that were working inside us for 20 years, we were successful in that country because of them. That's how we survived 20 years. Think about if they had turned their backs on us, we would have lost more service members. And so we have to honor what we say, you know. My dad always say, your word is your bond. Whatever you say, live up to it. And so if I, I think the, the Afghans will go through even a, a stronger process than the regular process because of all the negatives. Um, well, we don't want to keep you for too long, but we did want to make sure that we ask Obviously, you're running for re-election right now. So what's kind of um, both how's that going? And then also what's your kind of evolving vision for Helena going forward? I'll tell you this, though. When we hear people say Helena, we know you're not from Helena. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> no, that's okay. If you come to Helena and say Helena, they'll say, oh, there's another down south or east coast or whatever. So let's stop pronouncing Helena. I want y'all to say it. <laughs> Helena. Helena. There Helena. you go. So, well, I've been running on lately. Um, for my re-election, I um, would talk about, because we, during my last four years, we also put some money aside for what we call affordable housing, our housing trust fund. We'll put some money aside to see if we can build some affordable housing. And we're looking to do because our water, water and sewer, that system in the city is aged. And we need to start changing that. 
And so I'm looking to see how best we can invest in our, and then we're doing our streets. You know, Helena was the city built without sidewalks. Believe it or not, Helena was built without sidewalks. We're getting our sidewalks in place. We improve our snow plowing, which is a huge deal. It may be small for a place like North Carolina and South Carolina where you don't have that kind of snow, but plowing snow, it's huge here in Helena. In fact, in Montana. So those are some of the things that I'm looking at, affordable housing, repairing our age old water, sewer and wastewater systems, our streets, our sidewalks. And I think it's going well. My, I think my re-election campaign is going well. And um, I think I'll pull it off. Isn't that crazy? I can say that now, but I couldn't say that the first time. <laughs> but I still have to work because I have an opponent. You can never tell. You know, you only need one or two days. The ballots this this year, it's all mailing. So the ballots come to your home October 13th. You start to receive your ballots. And then you can turn them in anytime after that until November 2nd. You have about two weeks with your ballots and turn them in. So I think we'll do well. Just before we... Um... Before we go, I would just like to ask if you have any other thoughts, if there's anything you'd like to say that we haven't already covered. You know, what I'll say is that for those who are afraid of the unknown, for those who don't believe refugees are really seeking peace and not war, just Look at those, because I always tell people, they always go back to, I said, do you know of a, of a refugee that really created a terrorist act against this country? And a lot of people will go back to look at the Boston bombers and this and that. And I try to correct them. I said, no, the, their vetting process is a little different. They were asylees. So when it comes to refugee trying to harm this country, it's so far be- a few in between that you can't, you can't think of anybody. So that's not the intent. When I fled Liberia, you think I was fleeing to hurt someone? I was fleeing for survival. I was fleeing because I wanted a second chance. And this country provided us that second chance. Why would I turn my back on this country? I can't. So to those who think we're here for anything other than survival. It's inaccurate. I'm looking for a second chance. That's all I was looking for. And it was given to me. And every day I thank God that we're giving that second chance and making maximum use of the second chance. And I appreciate you all having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. That was Mayor Wilmot Collins talking about his experience as a refugee, his career in the Navy, and his time as mayor of Helena, Montana. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a comment below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Refuge Podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.